In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Definitely going out for a drink. Yeah. That's what you're looking for. Yeah. The most. Uh, just being with my friends, I suppose, like out, out being social. You know, like I just can't wait to be able to see people again, be able to meet people, because I'm a very social girl. Like. So you're in college. It's been a difficult year so far, hasn't it? Yeah. It's it's definitely been a learning adjustment, and I'm in my first year, so. It was interesting starting into it. So no freshers week or anything like no that. No freshers week or anything like that. But uh, like and no mad parties. No well, mad parties. Nothing you'll tell me anyway. Nothing. Nothing I'll admit to. But I definitely wish I could have experienced it. You know, I I feel odd missing out on it. But it's alright. Sure. We're nearly there. Get over it. Nearly there. Nearly at the end. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully now next year we'll be we'll be able to do all the college experiences now but yeah uh, I suppose kind of impromptu visits to the restaurant when you're out and about maybe so just go for a meal don't think about it just go definitely a few pints as well around the place will be uh, well deserved and well waited for here in Cork we're having an outdoor summer it's pouring with rain but we can get through that can't we definitely yeah I think people I think with things opening even with seeing the shops open there's a positivity you know seeing people going about their, their business in a way that we haven't seen in a while so I think we'll get by for one summer most definitely with the rain what am I looking for when you're interested freedom freedom to travel freedom to meet friends freedom to have social life so just freedom freedom going out to a restaurant there have a meal there inside you know what I mean instead of sitting outside there in the car like all the time like you know what I mean Having um, a sing-song. And so you play, want to be able to sing in a pub, oh, something absolutely. you can't do and you won't be able to do for a while. We, um, A group of us, we met at a market in Clonakilty and we were singing our hearts out there last week. So you sang in the market? And the whole the whole market joined in with us. People are bursting to, to kind of come together and sing a song and lift their spirits. And what did you sing? We sang I'll Tell Me Ma, we sang um, the Galway Races, we sang the Irish Shoro, Shedavaha Walya. And it cheered you up? Oh, it certainly did. And you want to be able to sing in pubs again? Sing and play in pubs again. And can you sing for me now? (laughs) Oh, Roche de Vaha Walya, oh, Roche de Vaha Walya, oh, Roche de Vaha Walya, and Nisher Come on this summer. Come on this summer. (laughs) Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, a quick question for you. Do you argue the whole time with your partner? Well, the good news is, don't overthink it. One of the things to get out of the way first that I think people would like to hear is the fact that all couples argue. It's as simple as that, isn't it? It's true. I mean, even happy couples, unhappy couples, they all argue and they all argue about some of the same things, things like kids, money, in-laws, how much sex they're having or not having. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times we start to worry if we're having some of these issues in our own relationship that in some ways our relationship is flawed, or our relationship is different somehow. Um, but the, the fact is there, there's some strength in numbers and, you know, we're all experiencing many of these same things. Right. So talk to me a little bit about conflict triggers. You mentioned a few there, but, the, but there are, a, a 2019 study said that there are some major ones that cause upset and irritation and hurt for your partner. Absolutely. Um, you know, the number one was condescension. You know, we, we don't like it when our partners talk down to us, when our, it, it's really a matter of respect. Uh, when our partners aren't seeing us as, 
you know, someone equal and worthy of their respect in the relationship, that that's, that's a real trigger for us. Also things like being possessive, jealous, independent, you know, kind of monitoring our whereabouts, being a little um, overly obsessive, perhaps about our social media use. Um, and then, you know, just things like neglect and rejection. Um, you know, being an unreliable partner isn't very uh, good either. Um, some other ones that, that I, I did mention, um, being inconsiderate, self-absorbed, being moody. Uh, not only, you know, is it important to, to note that these are all high-ranking things that uh, trigger conflict in our relationships, but these are common experiences. The fact that you have a moody partner who's sometimes inconsiderate or unreliable isn't necessarily earth-shattering news. I mean, this is, this is the kind of partner that we all have and experience from time to time. All right. I'm going to say nothing at this point, Gary. Um, so just on that thing, that whole idea, though, that you might sit down, <laughs> you might sit down with your character, your partner and say something like, you know, where are we in this relationship or how are we getting on? No one's ever going to have that conversation, are they? It's it's, it's they're they're reluctant for sure, but they absolutely should. And in fact, it's the number one taboo topic in relationships. You know, a lot of times People think, you know, the most taboo topic is some of your past relationships. And, and though while that's high ranking, the number one topic people don't want to talk about is the relationship itself. Yet it's the thing that couples should talk about. It's, it's something you should discuss and have a conversation about because what's more important than your relationship? And if you're happy and secure in your relationship, talking about where we are at, where we want to go, how we want to get there is really important to the relationship's development. Right. And if we don't do that, if we just let things, you know, sit or fester, or there are things annoying us and we're just thinking, I don't want a row. I don't want to get into something with, with my partner over this. That's actually the worst thing you can do. It is. Right. And so, you know, we don't want to, we don't want arguments. Right. And in some level that that's natural. Like, I mean, no one wants to be that person that seeks conflict and, and seeks arguments, but on occasion, I mean, it's necessary to have those discussions. And the important thing is, um, and when I say to argue more, it's really a prompt to have you be willing to address the small things in your relationship so that you can keep small problems small, right? And so rather than, you know, avoiding every time your partner is inconsiderate, you know, they, they forget to text when they say they're going to text. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm just going to let it go because I don't want to get into it with them about this. You know, just, you know, you don't have to be mad and upset and, you know, yell at them, but, you know, mention them, hey, you know, when you said you were going to text and you didn't, you know, I, I was a little disappointed by that. Um, and then, you know, so you can have a little a little discussion, because if you start saving okay. those things up and not letting and not dealing with them, it, it gets big and out of hand. OK, so you're kind of embracing naturally arising conflict. You're not shying away from it and, you, and you're, you're going to just try and, you know, take these moments to try and resolve things and move your, your relationship forward a bit. But. Do you need advice around this? I mean, for many people, they'll never have done anything like this. So to now start picking little, you know, moments, think I'm going to say something here. Do you need to be advised on how to do that? I think so. Um, and because you're right, it's not something that people naturally do. And people, you know, probably haven't taken a course on intimate relationships. And so people need a little help, right? And so I think one of, step one, avoid impulsivity. Right. Being impulsive is the enemy of good communication, because if you kind of impulsively wait for the time your partner annoys you to have that conversation, you're going to do it out of a place of anger, um, defensiveness. 
And so you want to avoid the impulsive discussion. And so plan out a time separate to have a discussion when you're not already upset or mad. Um, step two, I think, is, is remembering that you and your partner are on the same team, right? It's not me against you. It's us against the problem. And so we're not fighting against each other. The, the problem is whatever issues arising between us, and it's between the two of us to solve that problem. And so approaching things from that perspective where, you know, we have to confront this and not I have to show you how you were wrong and I was right is a real nice place to start from. Um, and related to that, the, the third one is start from this place of something Carl Rogers called unconditional positive regard, right? Where you assume the best of your partner. Remember, this is a person who's likely your best friend. You love them. You respect them. You really want what's best for them. And so when you're having a discussion, assume that whatever they might have said that was wrong, it wasn't intended to purposely hurt you, right? Give them the benefit of the doubt and they should do the same for you. Some terrific advice there from psychologist and author Gary Lewandowski from Moncrief. Now, this week, the Dads panel were back on the hard shoulder. Here's Shane Coleman, Ger Gilroy and Tom Dunn. Is it the start of them developing their own little, their own life that doesn't include you? Well, I mean, that would suggest that they had no independent thought from the time they were two banging you over the head and saying, I'm not doing that. And, you know, I think I think from the time they learned the word no, that starts to happen. <laughs> OK. But it's certainly the first time they have like uh, a little a, a little clique of, of uh, society telling them and creating this kind of, oh, hang on, there's another life out there. I can have something else for lunch if I want to. And I, my friends are having it and they're, my friends are doing this. Uh, you don't give them a choice, do you, for lunch? I mean, well, the trouble is that the food comes back if you if you don't. But then you just send back in the same food again, don't you? But uh, no, because then then they go hungry, and uh, hungry children are hangry children. <laughs> Shane, come on, you don't give them choices for lunch, do you? Uh, do I give them choices for lunch? Does Ev give them <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly choices for lunch? Do we feed them lunch? Uh, Shane? Ev, Ev, Ev is looking at me here, going like you'd know. <laughs> uh, when I made the lunches. How do you get out yeah, of making no. lunches? <laughs> uh, I by by uh, starting work at a quarter to five in the morning. It kind of helps. <laughs> it does get you off. To, it does get you off the lunches. Uh, there is one advantage to it. Um, no, I, I'm you know I'm I'm kind of with uh, sort of juror about like it, it was. It did mean a lot the first few days, but it was ama- Like I don't look back at it and go, oh wow, that was the beginning of of them you know moving away or becoming independent and stuff. I, I just saw it as. Just it's another phase, and it was a brilliant phase. And I just all actually all my three are now out of primary school, and um, I just have the warmest, warmest feelings and memories of that time because the school, even though it was in the middle of Dublin, it was like a it's like a rural school. It's right beside the GEA club. It's quite small. The building looked like the school I went to, and it was incredibly warm, hospitable, friendly school, and it was just gorgeous. And we, you know, like I'd I I thought I'd made all my friends for life. Uh, by by that stage, and we went into that school, and we just met so many people. So uh, I don't want to I don't want to make this about me. <laughs> it is about <laughs> yeah, my exactly, kids. Yeah. But I'll tell you, Karen, we had an absolute, we had an absolute <laughs> blast. <laughs> Tom, Tom, I, I know, I, know I don't even have to. I know it was emotional for you. Um, yeah, it's funny. I did see it as the beginning of them moving away from us, the very, the very early stages of that. I know they're only tiny steps, but but I think up to up to that, pretty much everything that had come to them had come to through us to them in some way, shape, or form. 
And then suddenly you were opening up all these other little influences that were going to start creeping up. And it took a while for you to notice them. But but that first morning, and I do remember it, because I'm not sure exactly what the preschool arrangement was. It was the school she went to. They had a little preschool in it. But the day that she was in the school uniform and was dressed up with a little bag in the hallway, I can remember the two of us looking at each other and just going holy moly, this is a big moment and, and we have the photograph of that to prove it. I'm not sure if we have the photograph of the second one. Well. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's a kind of a running uh, theme I notice in this yes, lot is that uh, numbers yes, two and three and as you go on there's a lot yeah, less recollection. And a thing, you mentioned the lunch. The lunchbox I thought was nearly the biggest thing because I think, because Audrey is a chef and I think it was the only thing that she had to express her love at this point, the only thing she could give her to take with her to school to have. So we had the most nutritious, studied, oh God, there were like Leonardo da Vinci compositions going into the lunchbox. And then you start getting the feedback. You start going, well, so-and-so had crisps and we've, we've managed to avoid crisps for these five years. And then suddenly she wants crisps. She wants the mini Mars bars. All these little things you managed to keep at your door and keep them away from you. Now they're coming in. There's nothing you can do about it. And that's just the beginning of it. But if she's any idea of the love that used to go into that lunchbox, honest to God, it was all we had to cling, with, cling to and, and let her know. <laughs> my, you know my wife Jer, puts much more effort into that. Like she will, like she will ask why things were not eaten. Was oh, it but, that they weren't hungry, yeah. or was it that they didn't like them? Is there a problem with this yeah. type of food, or other well, people eating it? Our trouble is that they they will like the same piece of fruit for weeks and weeks and then just decide no I've had enough of this and I'm never eating it again or the the type of cheddar <laughs> yeah. cheese has suddenly yeah. become unacceptable yeah and I know times have changed from, from our time in school all the food comes home you're not allowed to throw out food so you, you remember the rite of passage that it was when we were in school the daily trapes to the bin where yeah. you would look in and it was full of sandwiches <laughs> yeah somebody would have like a bite of one of the sandwiches some of that manky, <laughs> manky toxic luncheon meat yeah the whole thing God, stuff with it yeah I was a fan of luncheon gone no, it doesn't happen anymore. All the food, you're not allowed to throw out any food, which is great because it comes back to us and we're like, why didn't you eat the thing that you ate yesterday? It was totally fine yesterday. And now suddenly today is unacceptable. And it's like... Yeah, I know. As I was going to work yeah. today, my wife told me that our eldest Sam doesn't eat minced meat anymore. So that, that rules out an awful lot of those oh. staple dinners. What do you do? Bolognese, chilies, they're all gone, apparently, in our house. As of yesterday, he announced as he pushed his plate of spaghetti away from him. Won't no last. way. Not going to eat last. it. last. Wouldn't worry about it. Won't <laughs> last. He'll come around. Terrific stuff there from the dad's panel. From Friday's The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. On Monday, Kira Kelly spoke to Offaly hurler Derek Morgan about his long struggle with gambling addiction. Here's a short clip. How does it impact on your life, your your career, your relationships? Like even from a young age, like when I started betting, I started an apprenticeship. I was hurling into a county. I had a lovely car. I had a relationship, but everything in their them areas deteriorated slowly but surely. Um. It got to the point where I was not turning up for work. I was leaving work early. I was turning in late for work. I was leaving at lunchtime, going betting in my career around the hurling that the first maybe three to four years I really enjoyed. And then that slowly deteriorated as well. I couldn't function. I couldn't keep my head in in the moment with training. I couldn't commit to training. I faked injuries. It started to take away every aspect of my life. Um, with the hurling and the work and then consume me completely and the obsession it was like a mental obsession mm. that I had to gamble and it consumed everything that I couldn't see anything else involved in life only gambling Did you ever get very low with all of this? 
I did. I did. I attempted suicide on a couple of occasions. Um, I took an overdose of tablets in 2015 and in 2019 also. I just, I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to live, if that can make any sense to you. Like, I I couldn't cope with even seeing daylight. It got, brought me to my knees and brought me to the extent where most recently before I went into the treatment centre in Coomera and it's high that my daily routine was lying in the bedroom for maybe 23 hours of the day in the in the bed, in my clothes, depressed. And I just, I wanted it out. Like, I just couldn't cope with life. I never thought that I was ever going to get away from how I was feeling. And I always, I never felt like anyone cared about me. And that's not putting it anywhere. There's loads of people care, loads of people love. But I could never see it because mm. I felt so bad about myself. Look, I'm really appreciative. I mean, that's a raw story you're telling. And I'm really appreciative of you speaking to us this morning on the programme, Derek. How are you now? Is it an ongoing process? This is going to be a process for life. Um, the thing is, within recovery, it never stops. You don't, there's no end result in recovery. There's no, like, you're cured. This is an ongoing process to the, to the day I die. Because it's a simple, like, no matter if you're one week away from a bet or you're or 10 years away from a bet, the, re, the reality is you're, you're only 10 seconds away from a bet on an everyday basis. Because if you're not looking after your mental state, if you're not being honest, and you're not living to the suggested program that's suggested to us through the Gamblers and Honest program, and that's what keeps uh, keeps me well. It keeps me in a good frame of mind. It keeps me away from bed that I get up in the morning. I speak to people that are in the same, similar circumstances. I be honest to myself. I be good to myself and good to other people. And since I found Gamblers Anonymous, I actually just starting to be happy within myself because I'm sharing my experience, my strength and my hope in recovery yeah. that I can relate to with other people and they relate to me and I can speak openly honestly because unfortunately sometimes when you do try to talk about what's really going on for the people that don't really 100% understand is you, you go back in within yourself. The incredibly brave Derek Morkin from Muse Talk Breakfast. Plumbers, electricians, painters, carpenters, they were all there at the Clonart Court Hotel in Athai yesterday as the final preparations were made ahead of today's reopening. Hi, my name is Mary Fennan. I'm one of the owners here at the Clonart Court Hotel. Oh, Barry, an awful lot of work, I suppose. We found out two weeks ago that we were going to be open on the 2nd of June, so it's been all hands on deck. As you can see here today, we have a team of painters and decorators, carpenters, um, plumbers, electricians on site, an awful lot. So we're to the wire, but we're almost there. By six o'clock this evening, we're going to be ready to go. It's um, a serious amount of work in two weeks to get a hotel ready to open. Um, we've been busy for the past uh, two weeks. We've had all the staff back in for in, in the past 10 days to do induction training and training. And today we did our customer care program for the entire team. We've had our health and safety training as we speak at the moment. There's the first aid responder course going on for some of our teams. So it's all systems go. Getting back open, I would imagine you, we won't have any change out of €50,000 really to get back and going. Um, as I say, it's the training, it's your marketing, it's all of the um, repairs and maintenance. The hotel has been closed effectively for 10 out of the last 
um, 13 months. Um, so that's a huge amount of, um, of repairs and maintenance that need to go on. And they're all behind the scenes. They're not stuff that's visual. Um, but look, at, we're ready to go now and um, we just have to move forward and, you know, hopefully that we will recoup the costs. Please, God, the government um, will, you know, row in behind us with the continued supports and that would be fantastic if they did because... Um, How important is it that there's no more lockdowns after this? Oh, Barry, I don't think we could take another lockdown. I don't think the country could take another lockdown, to be honest. Um, it would be soul-destroying. Um, I, I would, it would be very, very difficult to go back into lockdown again. I, um, I don't know how would... I, I can't think that way. I'm thinking really positive for tomorrow. I'm thinking that we're, we're open and we're, you know, and it's, it's all systems go. I'm, so no more negative thoughts. We're, we're powering ahead and we're going, to, we're going to think positive. Like many hotels around the country, here at Clonard Course, they've had to build a new outdoor bar and seated area. Hello, my name is John Kelly from the Clannard Court Hotel. I'm the uh, conference and banking manager here. Oh, there's an, a mountain of work after going in behind the scenes. You know, we're working on our outdoor bar at the moment. We have a terrace bar being built. So the finishing touches, as you can hear, the builders are, are, are banging away here in the background. But it's great. The weather's been very good to, to get a lot of this work done. And we're looking forward to welcoming our people back again, your customers. Um, we want to give them a big Cade meal of fortune welcome when they come back you know, get the hospitality open where it should where we left off from How different is it you know all this outdoor dining area is all new is it and I suppose it's not like it was 18 months ago No it's very different but we're looking forward to it you know and people are, have got used to it now you know once a sunny day comes, everybody's out. They're having their drinks, they're having their food. So it's, it's certainly great. You know, there's a great atmosphere as well, especially when, you know, as I said, when the weather is good, people are very happy, you know, and they have loads of space. What about yourself? How long were you out of a job? And how big of a relief is it just to get back? It's a, it's a great relief to get back. I'm so looking forward to coming back, you know, working behind the scenes, doing some work here. Um, it's, it's great. You know, it, it really it boosts your morale as well. Barry White reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Now, this week, Future Proof featured a special programme on face blindness and super recognition. Here's a short clip. By comparing neurotypical brains to those of prosopagnosics, we can start to piece together how our minds identify and store memories of faces. There's two types of tests going on in memory. There's one which I, I call the Grant Mitchell face test because it's they showed you pictures of just bland faces with 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 no with, with no facial hair and balls. And to me, they all look like Grant Mitchell. But I, I, I think other people could say they don't look anything like Grant Mitchell. But it was just a screen full of Grant Mitchells. And then I have to, like, I press a button when I notice the same face coming up again. One of these tests that Colin took part in threw up a rather interesting discovery. Colin can't even recognise his own face. I was asked to I was asked to shave my beard uh, and then go in and, and do a study. And then they were showing me faces and one of the faces was mine. And I didn't pick up on that straight away, but I, I did by, by the time the study was complete. What I've done mostly in these experiments is be shown a computer screen with lots of different artificially created faces. So they're computer-generated images. And the tests involve things like being shown a face and then being shown five faces, and you have to say which of the five was the one you saw before. 
and I get appalling scores doing that. Um, and then they've done other tests where they show something like, um, and there's been some variance on that. So they show upright and inverted spaces because no human being can identify inverted spaces properly. So I come out like the controls with upside down faces. Funnily enough, that's not entirely true. There are some people who can recognize faces very, very well, even inverted ones. They're called super recognizers. So what we're not very good at is matching faces that are unfamiliar to us. For instance, if I show you a picture of your mother at the age of three, you will be able to recognize her despite never having had seen this picture before. However, if I show you uh, an infant picture of myself, since you don't know me well, it's very unlikely that you'd be able to identify me on that picture. Super recognizers are pretty good at this. For instance, one of the super recognizers that I work with um, reported that she had recognized someone at an international airport in Germany who she had only briefly seen once at a hotel in Turkey. And this was really impressive because she had, A, never actually interacted with this person, B, she recognized them in an unexpected and unlikely context, and C, she had seen this person as a child 10 years prior. (laughs) As someone who is bad with faces, this is astonishing to me. I had to speak to a super recogniser and I found one. My name is Lauren and I'm from Scotland. I suppose I've always known I was a super recogniser, but I didn't really know it had a a title like that. I grew up watching um, programmes like Crime Watch and just absolutely loved identifying people and just thought I would love to do that one day. You know, I, I could recognise just pe- random people from um, that I'd maybe only seen once. Just something that I guess I've always had. Lauren has lots of stories like the one of the lady in the airport. But the one that really got me going was this one. A few years ago, um, when I met one of my uh, friends who happens to be one of my best friends now, I met her in my early 20s. And um, one of the first things I'd said to her was, oh, yeah, I've, I've definitely met you before. I've seen you before. I described her what she was. We were walking. She was walking down a particular street in Glasgow. She had dreadlocks at the time and no interaction at all. We hadn't spoken. It was just she literally walked past me and she said, what? I just can't. At this point, she had this long, glamorous hair. But I just remembered her walking down the street years before with her dreadlocks in and it was her. She just couldn't believe it that I had had remembered her all these years later. Some fascinating insights there from Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. And of course, you can tune into Jonathan every Sashay afternoon from 12 till 1. Yes, every Tuesday we are open for biz and as always we're joined by Bobby Kerr. Have you been enjoying the good weather? Do you know, it's fantastic. Isn't I actually it? had a swim in the 40 foot this morning. Good it's man. absolutely freezing. Baltic. <laughs> but but you have the dry go. robe. Uh, don't tell anybody about that. <laughs> you're absolutely a dry robe man anyway. Uh, well, look, if you're enjoying the sun, um, wherever you are in the country today, look, it's been fantastic the last couple of days. We want to talk about alternative or the unusual kind of staycations if you're still in the pre-planning stage. We sent our reporter, she from Queen. she went to La Hinch to, uh, well, look, take part in a little bit of surfing. To start with, you've got to be in the right place on your board. So your toes want to be just over the tail of the board, okay? Okay, I'm Pat and I'm a surfing instructor with La Hinge Surf School, uh, taking a group out into the ocean. It's a lovely sunny day, the surf is perfect, so come on down and get your surf lessons. Hi there, I'm Stuart, I'm from South Africa, 
but I live in Ireland. My wife and I have been here for a few years now. We moved over here from Spain four years ago, actually. Yep. And have you always had an interest in surfing? Uh, yeah, I grew up in a small town in South Africa. It's kind of like Lahinch, surfed and fished and been involved with the sea and boats my whole life. Yeah, it says Lahinch Surf School, uh, surf warning, surfing is highly addictive. Hiya, I'm Aileen, I'm down in Lahinch today doing some surfing. Just wanted to get out and try something different. Weather's beautiful, so you have to make the most of this lovely country while we have it. Have you ever surfed before? Um, years ago, and I wouldn't say it was surfing, I'd say it was probably more bodyboarding. <laughs> Didn't manage to get upright. Are you looking forward to doing it today? Yeah, really looking forward to doing it today. I mean, the weather is beautiful. There's lots of people out surfing. I could end up with a board over the head, but look, we'll see what happens. Have you surfed before? Years ago, I did here in Lynch actually, about twice, but it's been about 10 years, so yeah, hopefully I can remember. <laughs> it might feel a bit balmy because we've started doing some of the sea swimming, just going in in our togs without the wetsuits. So I've sort of had a bit of a feel for the cold water, so <laughs> this might feel quite warm with the wetsuits. <laughs> That's just some of the people taking to the sea over the weekend, hoping to catch a wave. John McCarthy is a former Irish champion and pro surfer, and his Lahinch Surf School has been thriving since reopening. This is our 20th summer, so we started in 2002, just a small business, and we've just managed to keep going throughout the boom and bust. It's a fun business. Tell us what you do. So you have different lessons, and how does all that work? Yeah, in summertime we do kids' surfing camps, we do school tours, so we thank God we've had a lot of transitional years join. They've been boxed up all winter, and so now they're getting their school tours in. And then uh, we do kids' camps, we do adult surf lessons at weekends. We re- do a lot of surfboard rentals to families and lessons. Does this run all year round, or is it a seasonal operation? Normally we do 10 months of the year. We close for December and January. But with COVID, we've had a, a lovely long holiday. When you do 20 years in a business, it's great to get a six-month holiday. So we're back open since two weeks ago. And how has COVID impacted the business over the last year? Last summer, just before we restarted, probably around the 1st of June or 10th of June, there was so much uncertainty, but incredibly turned out to be one of our best years, even though we were closed again from the 1st of October. But within those 90 days or 100 days, because the demand was just so huge, did turn out to be a good season last year. And why do you think that is? Is it because everyone was going on staycations this year? Yeah, it's so interesting because there is, you know, there's no Americans. We always would get bookings through Airbnb, for example, Americans traveling. And we'd usually have German language students. But no, the demand was just huge with everybody staying at home, being forced to holiday in Ireland. So it is, it's probably like 50 to 100 years ago, you know, old fashioned holidays. Who would you generally have coming to the school? Would it be people who have never surfed in their life before or maybe they want to improve? Yeah, we get a lot of people who have surfed. Sometimes they might have surfed in Australia 10 years ago. You do get people who get into it and are are learning to improve. But a lot of it is just people are doing it for... It's an activity to just get away, get out to the west coast of Ireland and experience La Hinch. So you've obviously been surfing for years. What do you love so much about it? Yeah, I loved... Obviously, you get into the sea. The sea is a gift it washes over you and you feel great. And so I loved just the exuberance, the balance, the expression of just being on the board. It's absolutely individualistic. So I loved all of that and it was just, the sea is just so special. How many people would you have coming here on a daily basis? Kids are aged 9 to 12, the teenagers are 13 upwards. So you could have 50, 80 children a day and there is five surf schools in La Hinch. 
you know, the demand is, is huge. But surfing is just so popular at the moment. I think Decathlon, they sold 1,600 surfboards over the course of a week. Two weeks ago, they sold out. So demand for surfing is huge because people can't travel and it's right here. So I'm Amina and I'm covering the principles of maternity leave, so I'm the senior class teacher. And at the moment we currently have 18 pupils and at the end of the school year we're going to lose nine, there'll be nine heading off, so we'll be left with nine. So we're hoping to get four more students enrolled by the end of September so that we can keep the second teacher so we don't go down to a one teacher school. Would it even be possible to carry on with a one-teacher school? No, and it would have a knock-on effect because at the moment we're trying to entice people to come in, but that would only lower the chances of people trying to come in. It is a difficult situation to be in. Uh, You obviously want the two teachers. You want to have as much life in the school as you can, and it is difficult. It's a lot more work on the teacher, and it's more difficult for the children. It's more difficult for parents if it was to drop to a one-teacher school. So if you wouldn't mind showing me around? Yeah, of course. So we have three classrooms in the school. So this is our first classroom. This is where we normally have junior infants to second class. And then the second classroom then is my own classroom, the senior classes. And then the final room down there is our SCT room, the special educational room. It's quite, there's a lot of space now. <laughs> Uh, but not in a good way. There should be more children. You're hoping yeah. as the years come on now, uh, there'll be more yeah. children enrolling. And... Yeah, and that the place will be full and there'll be no, no space at all. <laughs> Moon tour Amina Uzbara there showing me around Skull Coleman in Muinish in Connemara. A campaign has been launched by the primary school and the local community to attract more people to the area in a bid to keep two teachers at the school. The Irish-speaking school is located on the island of Muinish, just a short drive from Karna. There are 18 children currently enrolled, but that is to drop by up to half for the next academic year, which will not reach the quota needed for a second teacher. I spoke with the parents' committee about the importance of the school gaining four more pupils. Michael Dunworth, and it's the Tishmohadi Galchalman Mwinish. Is there a concern now with the parents in the community about the future of the school? We're trying to keep the second teacher. If the numbers go lower, so low that it uh, doesn't warranty the second teacher, the Board of Education will take the second teacher away, and that's what we don't want. We'd like to have the higher classes in a class of themselves and the lower classes in their own classroom, which we see is, is, would be great. We don't mind what age group they are, from high infants to sixth class. When I started my son here three years ago, I was worried about a small school. I was thinking, oh my God, he won't have many friends. But I was so wrong. After a few days there, I knew I did the right thing. He's so happy every day. They all know each other. They're so friendly. And just the atmosphere is so nice. Like they have one of the best yards in Ireland to play in. And they get to go down to the beach and they have lovely freedom and they get to plant seeds just in the garden here. And the last day they came out of school and they all had their tomato plant they had planted a few weeks ago and they were just so happy. And they know just little things like that. That's huge. Michael and Bridget Hishmuhuri Skullcombe and Weenish. So the teachers and the parents highlighting the need for more families to move to the area. But what do the children themselves think? Uh, my name's John Joe and I'm 12. And Janjo, what's your favourite thing about Meenish? Uh, I like a lot of things. The most thing is like how quiet it is and you can like go on walks whenever you want without being worried of getting, like I don't know, people going fast on the road or anything. You like the country life? Yeah, it's very nice. I love um, cows and sheep and all that stuff. It's really nice. So it's nice to be able to look out your school window and see the sheep? Yeah.
It's mm. very nice. And the beaches too are just unreal. And would you like to have more classmates in the school? <laughs> yeah, it would be very good to have more classmates. I think it would be perfect. Uh, I'm growing and I'm 12. Uh, the best thing about Wienish is that everyone's very friendly with each other and everyone knows each other. But it'd be nice if there was a few more families in the area? Yeah, it'd be nice because we'd have more friends. Would you like the school to be busier? Uh, yeah, it is a busy area. Josh Crosby reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. With all my lotions and potions and skin regimens and makeup routines, I've always envied men for what I thought was a flippant regard for image or at least a laissez-faire approach to appearance. But according to Trinity sociologist Evelyn Mahan, that's just never been the case. Appearance isn't as gendered as you sometimes like to think it is. If you look at any of the period dramas, you'll see that men are just as dressed up, if you like, as women. I'm not saying men only recently woke up and discovered a mirror. But standards of male appearance have certainly risen over the years. I think the gay men's movement upped a lot of the stakes and made men ready consumers, really, for body images and appearances. That began to change very much any earlier gender divide there might have been, I think. Evelyn also thinks it has something to do with the job scene and how it's interacting with society's, quote, cult of youth. If you look at the labour market, there is a lot of pressure on people to look well, to look young, to look fit, to look beautiful. You know, a lot of people judge how you can perform based on your appearance. In interviews, they make judgments on your appearance the first two or three minutes you come into a room. So appearances do matter in a serious way. A lot of Brian's male patients come from the competitive tech world. So Evelyn's assessment certainly rings true there. Though Brian also argues that for men, it has less to do with holding on to youth and more to do with advancing health. You'll eat right, you'll have a clean diet, you'll exercise, you'll train, you'll want to be peak performance in whatever you're doing. And I think that's probably where the male market will move into quite rapidly, I think quite aggressively, because they just want to look better. They want to embrace getting older, but they want to be the best version of that person at that age. And what's more... Our modern obsession with optimization, goal-setting achievement could make the popularity of tweakments a mainstream mainstay. A lot of people are moving away from creams and serums and even the conventional facial because now they want results, they want data. If you say anti-wrinkle cream to somebody who's in their early 30s, they'll look at you as if you have two heads and say, I think that's called Botox. So I think now people are probably looking at not what should I be using, but who should I be seeing and what should they be administering. Makes sense. I've spent a small fortune on eye creams and my crow's feet are still deepening by the second. But some psychologists are worried about the normalisation of these cosmetic treatments. It's a huge cause for concern. Dr Helena Lewis-Smith is a senior research fellow at the Centre for Appearance Research at the University of the West of England. Helena says the long-term effect of cosmetic intervention on a person's body image is as yet unknown psychologically but also physically on the body no one knows what happens 10 years later after you've had like Botox we actually don't know what the outcome is all of these industries are preying on all of our insecurities to make money out of us the whole premise of these industries is to make us feel uncomfortable with our bodies and kind of sell us this dream you know sell us this kind of hope that we are going to look better and then we're going to be happier in our lives more generally we've all got insecurities you need to go to a place that's not going to abuse that I guess That's 28-year-old Dubliner Jonathan there. He's a recent convert to cosmetic intervention and has had a number of aesthetic treatments carried out over the last few months. I actually work in sales at the moment, so I'm obviously very face-to-face. It is obviously quite visual. I would be looking down into a camera. 
the thing that always kind of I couldn't stop looking at was a bit of a double chin I've always had. And it was something, no matter how much I dieted, how much I kind of worked out, I couldn't get rid of it. And so Jonathan found Sisu and a treatment called Aquilux. It's been fantastic. I can actually see my jawline. I've got a good structure and it just brings confidence back. I'm not looking every day into the Zoom and seeing my double chin. It was almost like when I was talking to customers, a bit distracting. So I guess in a way it's kind of actually helped my career. Health optimization, scientific efficacy and a potential for a career boost? I was starting to see the appeal of these tweakments. Though, I'm not sure my bank balance would be quite so enthused. Botox can cost anywhere from 250 to 650 quid a whack. And though it takes just 90 seconds to administer, it begins to wear off after about three months. So, when Brian made the following generous offer, I can't say I wasn't tempted. You're here, we've probably had a, had a, an informal chat about it, but also you can have a full consultation with me, and if you wish, you can have a treatment today. I told him I was keen, but that I'd probably have a think about it first. I took it to the mother, and, well, she was on the fence. If you get Botox and mess up that lovely face of yours, I would give you a black eye, and then you need more than Botox to get your face right. I'm shelving the idea for now. No daughters were harmed in the making of this report. Sarah Madden reporting for the Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. And I suppose there were people on that ward as well that you talk about who didn't get to, to go home or went home to say goodbye to their family. And you learned how precious life is. And there's something that you talk about in interviews, at your talks, and it's in your book as well. And I, I have to say, I don't really like it. <laughs> the 900 months, you find it really motivating I find it terrifying. Will you explain 900 months a little bit to people? Yeah, so 900 months is, is roughly your average life expectancy. Now, 900 months is 75. If we can be really technical, people will, will say, well, your average life expectancy in Ireland has gone to 78. But then I ask, do you, do you know you're going to live to be 78? So as a rough outline, it's 900 months, but we sleep 300. So on average, we have 600 waking months on the planet. And I realized at one point in my life, I had spent so much of my time chasing things that I thought would make me happy or chasing things that I thought other people wanted me to have. I spent so much of my time and energy invested in things that weren't actually making me happy. So anyone listening, I'd ask you, write down the three most important things in your life. Now write down the three things that take up the most time in your life. While I was in hospital at that stage, Claire, I wrote, I read an incredible book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And it's amazing how over you know, a number of years, this lady had asked thousands of people from different backgrounds, social, economic, racial, ethical backgrounds, what are your biggest regrets? And she realized that the same five kept coming up. And one of the biggest regrets was, I wish I took more time to be present in my life and not let my life pass me in a blur. I wish I spent more time with the people I loved. I wish I believed in myself more and had the courage to follow my dreams. I wish I didn't push myself so hard. And I wish I cared less what other people thought. That changed my life because I had got to a stage of 23 where I thought I was dying. And all the running and racing and all the things that I'd won suddenly became unimportant. And when you think your life is ending, the tragedy of life is not death, actually, because we call accept death as part of life. I think the tragedy of, of, of life is to arrive at the end of life and realize you never lived at all. You spent your whole life 
chasing things that didn't make you happy, waiting for something, waiting for somebody to give you permission, waiting. So I just decided at 23, when I, when I, I left St. Vincent's Hospital, I walked across the road to an Italian coffee shop that's still there. I thought about things. I thought about that book. And I wrote, I wrote down some things I was going to promise myself. And one was, whenever the end of my life comes, I won't have those regrets. I will be able to look back at my life and say, I lived my life being present, being loving, surrounded by the people I love, doing things that brought my soul alive. And that's all I've ever done, whether it's a business decision, whether it's a relationship decision. I've ever asked, what is my heart asking me to do? If I believed in myself, what would I do? Or a very simple question I ask myself all the time is, what would love do? If I really loved myself and I knew I had only 300 months left to live, what would I do? Then go do that because we have an inner intelligence in our heart that knows exactly what we want. It knows who we want to be. It knows what we want to do. But sometimes we allow the head, the brain, and the brain is a a threat detection system. So the brain operates from fear, but the heart operates from love. And we can't live our life through fear. An ignited life, an honest life, an integrated life, a life of passion comes from soul. It comes from heart. It comes from that, that thing of love and not fear. So I think that's for me. I just left there and I said, I don't know where my life is going to go. I don't know what I'll work at. I don't know how I'm going to make money. But I promised myself one thing. I will give this life every chance to be happy and joyful and to explore the things that make me feel loved and lovable. And when I come to the end, I won't have these five regrets. Some amazing insights there from Jerry Hussey, Aka the Soul Coach from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune into Claire every Sunday morning from 9 till 10. OK, I'm going to leave you with now Roddy Doyle and Joe Malloy from Off the Ball. Have a great weekend. So at this stage of your life, your relationship with Chelsea, it's still as uh, life-affirming and seismic when these moments happen, is it, as ever? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think there's something about football during the pandemic. It has meant more to me, really, than I ever thought um, uh, it would. You know, I love football. Um, when the season's on, I'm, you know, constantly looking at how scores are going. And um, no matter, you know, if it's the if it's League Two, I'm having a look at some of the, you know, some of the teams that I'd have a bit of a grow for. So it's always there. And I think when the Bundesliga started again in May of last year, mm. I found it really moving, you know, the fact that they, the football was moving again. It was, it was you know, and it, it really um, has fed me, I think, in a way, over the last... Uh, year right you know right um, and it was great I mean there's the excitement always a new manager as in Frank Lampard you know and new players and then you know it's going a bit belly up and then there's a new man in and the whole notion three months ago that we would have been in the Champions League final and not only that but win the thing it's just um close to absurd <laughs> so um, <laughs> you know, it's been incredible yeah pretty impressive 124 days work on Thomas Tuchel's part I think we could say <laughs> what is it about football that still grabs you I suppose or nourishes you to use your phrase for some 
it's the drama and it's the soap opera and it's the characters and the interviews. Mm. Others, it's just the enjoyment of watching 90 minutes of football and they hate all I, the other nonsense that goes it, with it. I, the nonsense... I mean, yeah, it's about watching the game, really. And it's the utter in unpredictability of it. Like, Alisson's goal, you know. <laughs> I'd rather he hadn't scored it in a way because it would have made life easier for me for the, you know, <laughs> in the last week before the final games. But I don't think there's any other sport that could deliver something like that, you know. And I love watching the game. I love. I, I much prefer to be there watching it but it's good on telly as well but it is the game itself and the way players position themselves and at my age when you see a sub coming on and if you like his face is in repose he hasn't started running yet and he looks like a child Mm. and then he's on the pitch and he's a man you know there's something I don't know I never noticed that obviously when I was a child myself because they were men Yeah, but and you know um, the play, some of the players now you hear a name that sounds familiar and you realise in the case of say Daryl Furlong oh yeah his dad used to play for Chelsea years ago <laughs> you know one of the first memories I have listening to a match um, West Ham were playing uh, and I had the radio in my bedroom you know um, top bunk and I was trying to get a good reception and when I finally got a good reception Hardy Redknapp was being sent off you know, so um, yeah. it's it's hard to imagine the man we see now on the telly. He was a footballer when I hmm. <laughs> when I started. You know, an interest in football. So I don't know. It it works on whole different levels. I do find it. Um, I, I lose patience with the punditry. You know, there's too much of it. I think hmm. a lot of nonsense. I'm listening to you know. Glenn Hoddle going on about the little pockets and the little channels and the little this and the little that and the, you know then you hear gobshites in the pub in fact you know we will hear them again but it's you know obviously it's a while and they're all amateur pundits and you know it's the systems and that but really um, I do think there are times when having a move explained to you by somebody who actually knows what's going on is useful mm. but, uh it's the football itself. It's the game itself. It's um, mm. and the camaraderie. You know, it's sharing it with so many people, your closest friends since childhood, and people you don't know. You know, so it works on many levels. But um, yeah, it certainly worked on Saturday night. Anyway, that's for sure. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.